0: In this episode, I talk with Kylie Jones, a leader who I met when she led an operations team with Kimberly Clark, Australia. In this episode, we hear about Kylie's passion for supporting women working in STEM. Kylie has worked as a leader in both product development and manufacturing operations and has a unique perspective on the relationship between those areas. Welcome, Kylie.
1: Thanks, John. Thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, yeah, you're welcome. I might just say a little bit about the fact that you and I Know each other from uh, I think we first met when I did some work with Kimberly Clark in Sydney, and you were working there in a leadership role, That's which we'll, right. we may touch on that later. And uh, since then, we've done a little bit of work um, with, with in your role at ITW as the uh network manufacturing and distribution manager. So, um, yeah, but let's go back first and let's start. At, like, I like to understand a little bit about my guests early life when we're young it's like the figures in our lives at that time have an imp- a lasting impression on us and uh, so I'm wondering did you grow up in Sydney Australia or did, did you grow up somewhere else
1: no I grew up in Sydney Australia in the eastern suburbs so um Maroubra, near the beach oh great <laughs> so it was yeah it was a good place to grow up
0: I bet it was so were you doing a lot of surfing
1: no not probably not quite that close to the beach to go surfing and in fact my mum used to take us to La Perouse to swim there so that was lots of fun but yeah it was a good place to grow up and close to the city once I became a teenager so it's a really nice part of the world and home of South Sydney Rabbitohs so all my family are man keen South Sydney supporters.
0: Okay so, yeah, does that, that was... include you?
1: Yes yes and I've passed it on to my kids too.
0: <laughs> okay right well I, I follow them as well so uh, we've got that in common.
1: Yeah, there you go.
0: Yeah um, so all right so you grew up there and um, so what What do you remember about um, those early years you know in terms of things that you carried with you you know into adult life and, and that are applicable in the were applicable in the workplace you know to your leadership style, how is that influenced by your early life?
1: Yeah. So um, I think I've probably told you before, but I'm a twin. So I've got a twin sister. When I think back to childhood, probably maybe being a twin has instilled this fairness value in me.
0: Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> and I
1: think, yeah, I think that that's definitely something that I see carried through into my leadership. So I feel like I, when I first became a leader, having challenging conversations, you know, it's always hard, I think, when you first become a leader. But I think part of the way I got around that was actually thinking about what's fair. And sometimes it's actually fair to the rest of the team or the broader business or even to the, the team member to actually have a difficult conversation. So I think that fairness value is something that has come with me all the way from being a child. And I think when you're a twin and sharing fairness is is really important and then i think the other thing is i think that i've been really lucky to have some really great female role models okay um so we lived with my mom and my grandma lived with us as well yeah um and then i ended up going to a all girls high school and so it's funny i've done so much work in stem um in the years since but i don't think i ever thought that as a female in STEM, it was more challenging for me because I actually don't think I I saw those challenges. I actually think it wasn't until I got to uni that I actually saw that not everyone had those experiences at a girls' school or, you know, they had different experiences. I just had so many females in my life that I just thought I could do whatever I wanted and it never really occurred to me that it might be challenging until I was a bit older. So I think that really helped as well.
0: So it sounds like um, your childhood left you as quite a confident person. Would you say that?
1: Yeah, I think so. Um, And I I used to really love sports. So I guess probably my early leadership was definitely in sports teams and was like captain or vice captain of, you know, the softball club and the um, sporting house at school. So definitely sports provided a good leadership opportunity early on.
0: Okay. So, just in case listeners don't know what STEM means, do you want to just define that? Yeah. Yeah,
1: sure. So, um, STEM stands for um, science, technology, engineering, and maths. Um, and it's definitely one of my passion projects. Yes. I love STEM. I think it's given me this really great, amazing career. I'm actually a scientist, um, a textile scientist. And I though have worked in very industries, from textiles through to alcohol and and chemicals, and I think science has just given me a lot of unique skills that are amazingly valued, uh, or valuable in the workplace. Um, so I think problem solving, um, looking at the root cause, and just working out how to investigate things is a really good skill, and. I guess once I became aware that, you know, the rates of women in STEM are, decline, or are not as high as their male counterparts, it's something that I've become really passionate about. And um, a few years back, I was lucky enough to be chosen as a superstar of STEM, um, which is this great program to really increase the visibility of women scientists in Australia. So really proud of what I can do there, helping encourage young girls and women to stay in STEM
0: yes and and can you talk a little bit then about so it almost sounds like there's a there's a sort of fairness values component to that <laughs> it's <laughs> like supporting uh you know women to be successful in an area that um i mean let's say it's traditionally been a bit challenging for women to work in that area um and it's interesting i was just thinking reflecting on my own experience i my my work life started with Unilever research in the UK and I worked in this massive laboratory, um, down in the South of England. There's probably over a thousand people there and, and lots of scientists. It was just full of scientists, but there were actually, I'd say, I, I don't know the count, but there were, there were, there were a lot of women working in, in Unilever research then. And this, this is back in the, uh, in the eighties, you know? so maybe they got something right at that time because you know i was i was working in an environment where it seemed i wasn't aware then of any lack of fairness um and there were you know there were uh, women that had reached senior positions in in that business at that time so um, but maybe that's not true everywhere you know, maybe mm. maybe that was an anom- anomaly rather than. I, I suspect it was a, a bit of an anomaly of Unilever Research, but it it does. I was just reflecting on that when you were talking about it. But but when you <clears throat> when you think about your work in STEM, then and how you've you were a superstar in STEM. That's a defined role, yeah. So what did that involve?
1: Yeah, so it's a government program, and it really. Um... It's about lifting the profile of women scientists in Australia. I guess it's based on the premise of you can't be what you can't see. So getting lots of female role models out there for young girls and women is a great way to encourage them to enter in and stay in a STEM career. And as part of the program, you get taught a lot of different skills around, I guess, like your media presence and communication, um, social media, um. Profiles, but I think the really um, heartwarming part of the project is um, getting involved with schools. So you go and visit schools and talk to um, young or young students, but you know, in particular, I guess the target is young girls. um, And it's really about encouraging them to, you know, look at STEM as an option and then to stay in it. So I've done some great things in that. I did one recently with a group of young students. And they were looking at how they could use like all the COVID-related waste that's coming out in other ways. So, you know, can they, some of those plastics, for example, could they reuse into um, like leashes and collars for dogs? And they'd they'd gotten through a a couple of, um, I guess, entrants in this particular competition. And so now they reached out to that program and they buddy. Um, the, the kids up with a superstar and I sat with them and we spoke about the scientific method and how you conduct experiments and yeah it's um it's a real passion and I think it's one of the things that keeps me really enthusiastic and I think um it's really important to get young girls interested I, I mean I see it it's interesting what you said about Unilever because I also see the operations side and women in operations and you know, gender balance is something that, you know, I'm really passionate about getting, but we, we're we not there yet. And I think the more people you have coming through at their early career stage and making sure the system's set up to actually keep them there through their career means that you will end up with more women in senior leadership roles. And so that's exactly what I'm passionate about doing, you know, encouraging people to to enter and stay into STEM and manufacturing to.
0: Well, you're certainly role modeling that, aren't you? It's like you can't be what you can't see. Well, if we look at you, you are doing that. So
1: <laughs> Yeah, thank you.
0: Yeah, no, that's right. I mean, that's um pretty clear to me you now that you're role modelling that behavior, and and um I've I've seen your, your career blossom. So um let, let's just go back again though to <clears throat> having a twin and then um <clears throat> I guess having having arguments with that twin when you were young about <laughs> <laughs> when something wasn't fair trying to make it fair i guess um so and you touched on difficult conversations you know um how uh it's fair to have the difficult conversation and i agree i think it's fair it's almost it's not fair to not have the difficult conversation i think in the in in a lot of situations because um, as leaders, you know if we don't have those difficult conversations then someone's going around totally unaware that there's an issue and and they they also they miss the opportunity to grow and we' and when we don't have a difficult conversation we also somehow miss an opportunity to grow as well because you know it takes some courage to do those. I was fortunate enough to have a mentor in that area um when I was in my thirties and he was exceptional at difficult conversations. So he he was, he was in HR and he used to take me into meetings when he had difficult conversations. So I used to witness these difficult conversations and learn from his, his role modeling right in front of me.
1: Sounds like an awesome learning opportunity. Oh, it was,
0: it was fantastic. And, uh, um, his name was Bert and uh, he was a Scotsman and he was, he was very direct and very open and honest with employees, and they didn't always like what he said. Um, there was one occasion where um, I was in a meeting with him, and um, I was I was making notes while he was he was actually having to discipline someone for something they'd done, and uh, this person wasn't um, taking this feedback very well, and they threw a cup of coffee at him
1: oh wow
0: <laughs> and um and they missed him and got me
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: oh no and I didn't see it coming because I was looking down at my notes so this coffee this coffee landed on my on the top of my head but fortunately it wasn't it wasn't hot and it was a paper cup but uh wow. yeah that was one of the more dramatic uh experiences of you know learning about difficult conversations so yeah yeah there was something well, thankfully about
1: thankfully I one. have not had that experience in yeah. my career so
0: far well I, I never had it again and um you know there was something to learn from that you know it was like you know you've got to be careful how far you push people in a difficult conversation you've got to get the tone right and we don't always get it right even the even the people who are experts don't always get it right um and Bert was definitely an expert but yeah I think I, I liked you the fact you touched on difficult conversations I think that's that's something that's a big part of being a leader and being and it's that's part of helping people develop yeah you know, and and you and I have done some work together on uh development, and you know I've seen you have those difficult conversations and 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 what you see as a result of difficult conversations is sometimes people grow amazingly from them,
1: yes definitely agree and
0: you yeah know, it's like. And if we don't do them, we don't give them that opportunity. So it's like we have to look inside. I think, what's the thing that's stopping me have that difficult conversation and and deal with that? When it's it's like an internal process. When I get over mm-hmm. that that block that I have and go and do the difficult conversation, even if I don't do it skillfully, just pra- I mean, this is an area where practice definitely makes perfect. Yeah, and throwing yourself into it. Anyway, I'm doing too much talking. Um, let's talk about um, you know, you you mentioned that you uh, were you're a scientist and you're a textile scientist, yeah. So was that your first job?
1: Yes. So my first job out of uni, I was a textile scientist. I actually worked in a company that made carpet backings and geotextiles, so textiles that are used in um like road bases and sort of building and things like that. And pretty quickly started in um, like an R&D, like product development type role. Um, so I spent like a lot of my career actually in product development. Um, and that was a really fun job. It was, I think, a really good company to start in after university. Everyone was like great to work with. Um, I'd only been there a few years, though, and the company actually closed. They were bought Or sold to a much bigger company and um they decided that that particular site wasn't viable um but while I was there it was awesome and I I think it was a really good first roll out of uni
0: and can you remember any key things that uh happened there that of note
1: um that was your first
0: that was your first experience (laughs) in the workplace was it? it
1: Yeah, it was my first experience in the workplace and actually the funniest thing that comes to mind when you ask me what I recall, the first thing that I actually remember is that my boss telling me that if I was going to be successful in business, I need to learn how to play golf. <laughs> and so actually every Thursday afternoon for a really long period of time, he would um or oh, I think he was just a golf fan, to be honest. But we would go to the local golf course and do, and various people from work would come. But um, he was determined that I was going to get a good golf swing um, while I worked for him. But um, I can't say that that's really a sport that I've taken up since. <laughs> but but from a work perspective, um, or a, I guess a career perspective, I think one of the things that it did really early on was give me a really strong customer focus. So um even though I was just out of uni, I was fairly quickly um, taken to customer sites. And if a customer had a particular problem, um I was taken out to the customer site. So I think it gave me really good exposure to you know putting the customer at the heart of everything that we do.
0: Oh, I think that's a great thing to learn early. yeah, yeah, because uh, you know that can completely change the way you look at things um so so and did you k- take that customer focus with you into into subsequent roles yeah
1: yeah so after that I went to Huggies um and I worked in product development there in various roles and then also in operational roles and absolutely um having the customer at the heart was a focus of that brand and and of that company so those products, I think, because Huggies Nappies are worn by babies, you know, they're small and precious and gorgeous and mums and dads um, just love their babies. So I think it was a really nice brand and product to have an emotional connection with. And so once you have that emotional connection, it's it's definitely easier, I think, to have a customer focus for a product like that.
0: Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, so this was is, this is with Kimberly Clark, yeah. That's um, correct, yeah. So, and how long were you with Kimberly Clark?
1: I was in the end I was with Kimberly Clark for just over 16 years. Um I started off as a product developer. Actually did some global work in product development for them too. Um I also did operational roles with them, so running a nappy line, which was just awesome and that was my first um foray into manufacturing and I just fell in love with it and That's where I've ended up. (laughs) Um, And then I've also led up the research and development team for Huggies for Australia and New Zealand. So I had a team of product developers working with me as we developed all of the Huggies baby and childcare products, so wipes, nappies, nappy pants.
0: So say say a little bit about the difference between managing an R&D team and then managing a production line. That's that's producing uh huggies nappies at what, fifteen every second or something? Is that how yeah, fast it is? A
1: lot. Yeah, it's a lot. Um I think probably the key thing is um when I was leading up the R D team, I had some, I mean, some really amazing product developers there. Um and even though I'd come up through the ranks of product development, and I think I was a, a pretty good product developer, I had people working with me who just were outstanding and amazing and way better product developers than I could ever hope to be. Um, So they've got their own set of technical skills and they're really, really highly motivated. So, and a lot of them also have those same customer contacts as me. So I, I probably felt that the why wasn't as, it was almost like they knew the why fairly intrinsically and I probably didn't have to spend as much time you know, focusing on the why with the R&D team, whereas I think with the production team, sometimes the way it is is that the production team might get the worst of something just because it's the best for the business. And so in that case, selling the why and explaining it is really, really important. And I think that's probably one of the things that I could bring to that team, which they hadn't had, I think, before. So a lot of the, when I took on the operational role there at Huggies, a lot of the previous team leaders had been engineers or come through the, the factory. So I was, well, first female, um, but also I think the first coming from like an R&D type background. But because I had such good contacts with marketing and I understood a lot about the brand and what the brand was really trying to do, I think that that really brought a different perspective to the production team and i could share with them that bigger picture more easily and i think that yeah. that probably helped a lot
0: and also um i think that uh you know like i did some work in that environment so and I, and my own background is in manufacturing and I, th- I think when you're working with teams like that they are dealing with minute by minute issues so you know it's like they're they're literally having to be very present because they're dealing with something that can turn pear shaped in no time at all. Whereas if you're in a long process product development process, that isn't really the environment you're in, is it? It's more of a long-term and with a very strong, why I understand that completely uh, for product development. It's like you're, you've got this strong link to the customer. I think it's a great, preparation actually for operations
1: yeah you know it, it, i think it really is and i think um it that time in r and d has made me a much better operations leader and i think it probably allowed me to have some really good conversations and something that i've taken forward into my career the i think the one defining moment that i remember is a particular project that I'd worked on just before I took on the operations team. And in this particular project, I was adamant that the customer, the consumer would really love this particular feature in this particular design, and that it had to be done that way. Customer loved it. We couldn't compromise on that. And the production team were like, this is going to be really challenging for us to run. But the customer won, and we rolled that out. and then suddenly i was responsible for manufacturing it and i actually started to see that whole value equation really differently so the customer may value it to a certain amount but probably not to the extent that it was costing us not even just in i mean do- dollar terms is what it ultimately comes back to but um it wasn't worth it once i could actually see that and i think that taught me something about really paying attention to what The ops team are saying and also um really understanding the value of something and what the value is to the consumer because in the end I don't think that the consumer was willing to pay for that you know for that feature in the way it was rolled out um once I actually got better visibility of it
0: that's a fascinating insight but let's just stay with that for a second is that it's like um and well done by the way for you you know just being able to step back and go hang on a minute you know there's something for me to learn here yeah but yep. that that whole thing about collaboration between you know operations and product development or operations and other areas of the business you know it's like that having that understanding of the impact of a change made in one area on in this example on the operations area so you get into operations, then you see how difficult it is to manufacture that particular feature, yeah. And maybe it's causing a lot of pain in the operations mm-hmm. space, yeah. So how it's like there's there's an an amazing collaboration opportunity there, isn't there? To um, it's like if you if you were to go back and do that again, what would happen? Do you think?
1: Well. So we actually we did go back. Oh,
0: did you? Right?
1: <laughs> so um, once once I realised that that was not great, and you know we ran it for a while and we could track the data, and it was like this is not this is not really feasible. It's not what we want to be doing. So we mm-hmm. actually did go back and do a bit of a redesign on that to make that feature um, less challenging to produce, but still maintain, I guess, the elements of it that the consumer loved. Um, and I guess that's that whole. Um, product development piece that I really like I I still love product development and that's the part that I love it's that combination of what does the consumer want and being able to deliver that and then because I love operations how do you deliver it efficiently and in a way that you know is safe and is of a consistent quality
0: yeah yeah so like I've had many experiences where the, the the new product arrives and you don't know anything about it and suddenly you're left holding the baby so to speak or maybe literally the in this, <laughs> um yep. you know so um so i've i've you know i've, I've had uh, experiences where there hasn't been great collaboration and i think you know this is an example of an area where you do want really good collaboration and good and it, there's lots of things that come with what that are challenging about collaborating in this space because you've got one area saying, Yeah, we really need this, you know, the consumer wants it, and we've already promised it to them, or we've promised it to our customers. Um, and then that's all happened before there's been any collaboration with the operations people. Whereas if you get them involved early and make them like they if they if they see the strong why. I think operations are more likely to come to the party in inverted commas and and really try and if they're part of a team from the get go because I've been I've been in that situation as well and that's that's far more satisfying and usually successful when that happens. So I think what we're touching on here is the value of collaboration, yeah, acro- across across different areas of a business and. Uh, it won't won't only be true for operations and product development, although I think that's a really uh, good example of one that if you get that right, that contributes to the future success of a business in a big way.
1: Yeah, I definitely agree. And especially in lots of those fast-moving consumer good products where you're doing lots of innovation every year. Um, You know, when I think back to Huggies' days where – you know, investigating things that are years out. So the ops team are working on some really big future things, but they're also upgrading and executing the product that's being launched this year so that it was really busy (laughs) and lots of different projects going on at the same time.
0: Yeah, yeah. So so you need that, you know, constant dialogue, don't you, to, uh, you know, get people on the same bus, so to speak. Um, So I think that's a key skill for people to, if they haven't got it to develop it and to go out of the, out of their way. And, and listening is so, so important in those situations. You know, it's like, you know you can imagine in operations, listening to what product development have done and what they're looking for and then product development, listening to the impact of their decision and their drive on different areas. And then, you know, is it worth it, you know, or obviously you've been involved in those sorts of conversations. I'm really curious now why do you like operations so much?
1: Yeah um, that's a great question John. I think there's something a little bit crazy about the everyday in operations so you don't know what you're going to get on any given day and so there's probably an element of excitement and you know sorting things out and problem solving that I really like. Um, I love executing as well so I think working in ops you're always doing things and it's a quick response so it's funny what you mentioned earlier about product development having a bit of a longer time scale I think one of the things I really like about ops is that it's a bit faster and I think as I've progressed in my career that's changed a little because there's much more strategy involved as I've become more senior but um Yeah, I think I really like executing as well. And the people, I love working with like the production teams. There's just so many amazing people that I've met like throughout all my jobs and, you know, I love all of them. They're just, yeah, always really interesting and it's been fascinating to work and meet with so many different people.
0: It sounds very familiar to me, because that's why I moved into operations from research, because I found, I found, personally found research was just a bit too slow for me and not not exciting enough, and yeah. getting into a factory environment for me met, that, that really hit the spot, you know, it was yeah. like, uh, it, might, it probably sounds a bit weird to say, but, you know, I, I spent like, you know, 20 years working in factory environments, you know. Which are you know they're challenging environments to work in sometimes from just temperature and everything else you know I mean it's and safety you've got to you've got to have eyes in the back of your head sometimes in those environments. Yeah, I loved it, and I, I, it was just the the immediacy of it all, and the fact that you have to think on your feet, you've got to react quickly, and and every day there's you know there's a goal right in front of you. And you get immediate feedback against that goal, so you know yep. exactly when you walk home. When you're going home, you know exactly how well or how badly the day has gone. Yeah, there's yep. something about that that's just very rewarding. And like you said, the people in operations. Like I remember working in factories in Merseyside and then in Edinburgh, and just the people are the salt of the earth in those environments. What you see is what you get, and there's just people are just very direct honest. I love it. I love that environment. So Kimberly Clark took their business, their manufacturing business offshore uh, for Australia. So Mm -hmm. you must have ended up looking for something else, I guess, in the manufacturing space.
1: Yes, I actually chose to move on from Kimberly Clark, um, mainly because I love manufacturing and I still wanted to stay with a company that had local manufacturing. So then I went to Diageo and was managing their product development team of light liquid technologists and packaging technologists. That was super fun. So alcohol industry, first time doing food, which was um, good, yeah. and amazing brands. Like I think that's probably the other thing that I've learned over the years. It's so much fun to work with big brands, and um, Diageo has got some stellar brands mm. to work with. So super fun. Yeah. Um, my leader there was amazing. so she was she was awesome, a great role model again. Um, you know she was really knowledgeable about all aspects of the business and um, really customer focused as well, mm-hmm. but she really cared about people. And I think it's the first time in a long time I'd had to pick up new products, whole new technical sort of aspect of things. And so I guess I really was pleased to know that I could transition. Um, so as a scientist, I wasn't just locked into being textiles or nappies that I could still take a lot of those skills and transfer them to another industry. And it helped me realise that as a leader, my job isn't to know all that technical detail. It's just to know enough to ask the right questions. Mm. Um, And so that was a really good learning experience for me when I did
0: yeah so in that in that environment then you're managing people who are doing product development so you don't have to get down into all the little tiny details it's like it's more about how do i motivate and engage these people to reach their goals and to you know deliver what the business is looking for yeah
1: yeah discomfort because when i'd done r&d previously i'd I knew the technical stuff. I was
0: okay. you know,
1: a technical expert as well. Um, so the team that I led up, even though there were aspects of that that they knew more than me, but I knew I knew a lot. And um, then to go to a business where I didn't have any technical knowledge about mm. any of the products that my team was working on, Um there was a certain level of discomfort there to the point where a few weeks, in I actually said to my boss, I was like, why did you hire me? <laughs> I just want to check. <laughs> yeah. um, and so it definitely helped solidify that, yeah, there's aspects of being, I think, my science degree, and I'm just naturally a scientist that I've been able to bring to all of my jobs. And even, you know, the job that I'm in now, not jumping forward, but again, it was another industry change into chemicals. And I'm not a chemist. And so yeah. I've been able to take that on as well. So I think I, yeah, being comfortable that I can actually pick up new products and new technical mm. things is really good to know. And it gives me comfort <laughs> as I'm looking, you know, to, you know, when I changed jobs, it was a bit uncertain, but now that I know I can do that, that is good to know.
0: Yeah. It's a very different, perspective isn't it going from uh managing a process a development process and managing things and being hands-on with that to managing people yeah um so so then you know you made that move to itw which is a you know a different industry again and what is the most recent role and what, what would you say any leadership um learning from that is it still are you still being stretched
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think in my current role, I've taken on the responsibility for four production sites now. That's been really interesting, Um, made up from some really different businesses. Um, So ITW acquired them and um, that's how they've all become joined together. So really looking at aligning processes and systems. But I think probably the other big thing is really because I had a really good leader there too who had a really strong problem-solving focus Really driving that culture within the business, mm. and really taking them to looking at what the root cause is, so we can address issues and resolve them. And so that's been quite um, interesting as well, being part of that culture change on the site.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so what was it? What was the culture like before you introduced that sort of more more methodical approach? Then was it more just um, you know flying by the seat of the pants type thing?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think like a lot of industries, it's probably was a bit more firefighting. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to really try and resolve the issue so we don't have to come back to it again, um, that I think really has put the business in um, a much better problem-solving culture or state than it was previously. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and then I think as well it's helped lift a lot of skills within people in the business because we've done training to you know, help people understand there's all these different tools that they can use to do that. So I think it's really helped broaden sort of the exposure to lots of those things to people in the business, business who haven't seen that before.
0: Okay, right. So we could talk for longer about this, but I I, I understand we have to finish soon. So I just, I'd like to just wrap up by asking you, um, first of all, by thanking you for coming along and talking. I would be interesting to explore the culture change that's been going on in, in your most recent role, you know, and how, how that's been, how you've been able to deliver that.
1: Maybe part two.
0: <laughs> Maybe part two. Yes. So just b- before we wrap up though, I'd like to ask this question, you know, if if you had a young team leader now and you're mentoring them, can you give us three things that you say to that young team leader, you know, three key things that you want them to think about? um at the start of their leadership journey yeah you know, things that were, were that, you know if you'd if you could go back to your earlier self what would you have said to yourself basically yeah yeah
1: so I think the first one would be um to be authentic to yourself so I do remember in my first leadership role having someone tell me you should be tougher you should be harsher And that's probably not who I am. So Mm. it took me a good six months to just step into that and go, this is who I am as a leader. So first one would definitely be authentic to yourself. The second piece I'm actually going to steal from someone else. I remember doing this leadership course for women scientists actually over in the US and Kimberly Clark was nice enough to send me on that. And that one was don't be afraid of trying things. There's been roles that I've done that I've liked less than other roles or projects I've taken on that have been challenging, but I've always learned something from them. So don't be afraid to try something because you'll always learn from it. Um, and then I think probably people remember, people go to work every day and you they're not going to remember every single day, but it's the leaders and the people you work with that you remember. So you know, focus on building good relationships with people because people will come back and thank you for that more than, you know, just a job that they might have done. So, yeah, really care for the people who are in your team.
0: Yeah, lovely. Uh, I couldn't disagree with any of those. They sound, especially this authentic thing of not trying to be someone that you're not. That was Kylie Jones. And if you want to contact Kylie, her LinkedIn profile is in the show notes. Here's some coaching moments from today's show. Number one, as a leader, evaluate the relationships you have with people in other areas of the business. If those relationships aren't as effective as they need to be, take responsibility for improving them by listening first to understand. This isn't about liking someone. It's possible to collaborate very effectively with someone you wouldn't call a friend. Number two, does your team understand the value they bring to your business? Take time to ask team members how they bring value to the business and acknowledge that. This will build the team's understanding of why it makes sense to be motivated and engaged. And number three, if you have a frontline leader reporting to you, schedule a discussion to review collaboration with other areas of your business. What could you do better in the collaboration space? Are you encouraging your team members to collaborate with other areas of your business? If not, why not? If you'd like to learn more about a mastermind program for managers and frontline leaders, please visit workplaceculture.com.au. The link is in the show notes. Our mastermind program guides leaders through a process of developing their frontline leaders and team members. This creates an environment where people work collaboratively to deliver results. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you would like to hear more conversations with leaders, let me know by subscribing on your podcast app of choice and leaving a review. That's all for now. I'm John Bradbury, and this was my Workplace Culture podcast.